anyone had heard of the organization Open Doors. Uh, they're a, a global organization that, that kind of researches and presents and works with people who are being persecuted for their faith. Uh, and I, we threw the link up, I threw an article up this week from them. And as I was preparing for this morning, I came across uh, this on their website. Let me just read it for you. It's a bit of a, bit of a longer quote, so bear with me. Uh, there was an article on Open Doors that said, the International Society for Civil Liberties and Rule of Law, which is an independent nonprofit that advocates for societal freedoms regardless of religion, said in July that in a 200-day span, assumingly leading up to that, 3,462 Christians had been hacked to death by Nigerian jihadists. 3,000 Christians had been abducted and 300 churches attacked. For the first time, Nigeria entered the top 10. They were at number nine. They came up from number 14. They're in the top 10 of Open Doors 2021 world watch list of the world's 50 most dangerous countries for Christians. The West African country has seen what seems to be an ongoing genocide, and they accounted for 91% of all Christians killed for their faith in 2020. Uh, Open Doors explained this. They said most of the violence is in the north in the form of attacks by Boko Haram or split-off groups, Fulani militants or armed bandits. But it's also spreading to the south. Such violence often causes loss of life, physical injury, as well as loss of property. As a result of the violence, Christians are being dispossessed of their land and means of livelihood. Then they interviewed or quoted Pastor Jeremiah, whose name has been changed, whose Nigerian village was attacked by Fulami militants, and he articulates the reality of Christians in Nigeria's Middle Belt region. He says this, When we go to sleep at night, we're never sure whether we'll make it alive to the next day. We've cried to the government to intervene, but they have done nothing. But hear this. He says, But we still pray for the Fulani militants to change their ways, because some of them were forced into it while others have hardened their hearts to do this evil. And he says, but nothing is too difficult for God. Now, I know intellectually that following Jesus could be costly. In my head, I understand that following Jesus could mean suffering or imprisonment or, or even death, but I can't think of a single moment in my life where I felt legitimate fear because I followed Jesus. That just hasn't been my reality, and I suspect I'm not alone in that. I've never had to worry about somebody breaking into my house because I'm a pastor and, and killing me in the night. I've never had to worry about uh, someone with a gun coming into one of our gatherings and disrupting it. But I wonder, what does that kind of pressure do to a person? How would you respond if you knew that you might face physical attacks for your faith? What would it be like knowing that, that your death in that moment would be considered a victory for someone else? This is exactly what those first disciples were facing. Jesus had warned them that from this point forward, that persecution and martyrdom were more likely than not to happen for them. In John 16, chapter 2, he says, this is, this is going to be the reality. They're going to throw you out of community, and when they kill you, They'll think they're doing God's work. Once Jesus leaves, there's probably few days where the disciples will feel safe. And any day they could be arrested or killed for their faith. 
And history tells us that each one of the apostles, every one of the 11 guys sitting in the room with Jesus in this passage we're talking about, experienced severe physical persecution. And all but one were killed as martyrs. And the one that survived somehow survived being boiled in oil before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he eventually wrote this book for us. If we remind ourselves of everything the disciples have heard in these last couple chapters, remember chapter, John chapter 13 to chapter 17 all happens in the matter of an hour, a couple of hours, maybe it's a dinner that they're all spending together. So we think of everything that these guys have heard from Jesus in these past minutes. How would we expect them to react? How do you think that they'd live their lives going forward, especially knowing that Jesus has just said, the world will hate you. I think it would be absolutely natural for them to hear that and think, okay, self-preservation mode. If this happens, if Jesus is taken away, I'm going to go live up in the hill somewhere. I'm going to be as quiet as possible. I'm not going to push any buttons, disrupt anything because I like living. I think that would be natural, wouldn't it? Of course, that's not what happens. Again, the Bible and the book of Acts and history records that in the the months and years that followed this dinner with Jesus, these disciples and the others who were closest to him when he lived changed the world. They turned the world upside down. In spite of the threat of persecution and even death, they stepped up and embraced the mission that Jesus called them to, including the consequences he promised them. In the book of Acts, of course, the warnings, we, we see that the warnings that Jesus gave the disciples come true. They're kicked out of the synagogue. They're mocked and scorned by the religious elite. They're arrested and beaten for talking about Jesus. In one part of Acts chapter 5, we see a couple of the disciples brought to the, the high priest's court, to the religious court of the day, questioned about what they're doing, and then rebuked for teaching that Jesus died so sinners could be reconciled for God, to God. And then they were beaten They wanted to kill them, but they were talked out of killing these guys. And so the court beat them. But do you remember how they left? Remember their attitude when they left? They were joyful. They left praising God that they were thought worthy to be beaten for Jesus' name. That's kind of the opposite of what we might expect, isn't it? I would expect that someone who's just been falsely arrested, falsely tried, beaten, and left, would be really angry. Honestly, if it was me, I think I would, I would hang on to resentment and bitterness, and I'd be upset at what just happened to me, and how, how dare they do that. I have my rights, and, and on and on it would go. And who would blame the disciples for feeling the same way? But they're not angry. We don't even read that they're unhappy with what's just happened. They leave rejoicing. And they go back to the others and say, Guess what just happened to us? Guess what God's doing through us? This was worth it. Think about everything we have today. I, I mentioned in the first, yesterday we got our first good snow here in, in the Bow Valley, right? And we look out the windows and the, one of the first snow is like my favorite of the snows. Not because I miss summer already, which I do, but the way the mountains look, it's just the prettiest right? Like it, the, the colors and then the contrast that the new snow gives on the, on the mountain. We had the blue sky. It was brilliant. I think uh, most of us drove down to church this morning. I see one pair of bike shoes out there. 
I would expect nothing less. Great to have you, Craig. Most of us have warm homes, comfy beds. We have, we have so much. And yet sometimes joy eludes us. We have all these things, but, but, but sometimes we're just grouchy. And yet the, the disciples, they rejoiced in their poverty and their affliction. Our emotions are, are often a roller coaster. Mine are for sure. When things start to, to go bad, down in the dumps, right? Everybody hates me. The world's against me. Nothing good could ever happen. But then when something good happens, oh, we're right back on top of the world, right? The God of the mountains and the valleys, man, good thing, good thing. Now, no question, no question the disciples faced hardship. They had bad days. They may not all be recorded here, but no question they had these things. Did they, even though in the midst of torture and prison and death, the disciples experienced such a profound joy. Well, how did they do this? If we, we look at what's just happened here, Jesus has just unloaded a whole bunch of earth-shattering news on the disciples. He's told them that they're going to be betrayed, that he will be betrayed by one of the closest followers. He told them about his crucifixion. He told them that you're all going to abandon me right away. He told them that uh, they will be persecuted, not as this might happen, but this is going to happen, so you know, get ready for it. But then as this teaching time comes to a close, Again, remember, chapter 13 through 16, so much of it is all one big, long teaching time that Jesus has had around the table with these closest disciples. As this comes to a close, these are his last, last words, basically, to the disciples. He tells them he's going to do something in them that will bring complete, abundant, fullness of joy. And that joy will transcend the darkest, most dire, most depressing circumstances that they will face. What does this joy look like? We're going to see, as we look at the text here, four distinct qualities of this joy. The first is this. The joy that Jesus promises, and this is, this is key. This isn't just Jesus says, there's joy that you have access to, good luck getting it. He said, no, no, no. Here's the joy that's going to come, fullness of joy. Jesus says, this joy will be revealed in a time of sorrow. Look at John 16, verse 20. And this is how he, he starts something of a, a pep talk to his disciples on joy. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. It's not very joyful yet. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 21, when a, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. These aren't necessarily comforting words to start with here. He starts by saying, things are going to get worse. Not only will the disciples weep and lament, but those around them, the world, those who oppose God, those who reject Jesus as Messiah, will experience joy at their sorrow. Now, I don't like weeping and lamenting. That's not a, a, a posture I, I aspire to take too often. But what makes that, that crushing sorrow worse is when the guy next to me is laughing at me in it. And that's what Jesus has just said. Something's, something's coming, you guys. And you will weep and you will lament and the world will celebrate. 
But, he says, those roles will be reversed. Your sorrow will turn to joy. Even though there will be sorrow, there will be joy that lasts. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Pixar came out with a movie called Inside Out. Did anyone see that one? Inside Out movie? Had a couple hands in the first. We've got a few. Well, this movie, it was a, it's a really fascinating look. And, and what they've done is they, there's, it tells the story of an 11-year-old girl who's, who's grown up in one place and their family's moving across the country. And, and naturally, that brings with it some emotion. But the movie kind of goes into the girl's head and personifies five key emotions. There's uh, joy and sadness and anger and fear and disgust. And here are those characters for us on the screen there. And so as the movie goes on, we see these five emotions kind of running the control center of this girl's brain and saying, okay, well, this just happened. Oh, we get to be angry about this. And anger comes in and he starts flipping switches and she starts to react angrily. Well, joy is kind of the, the, the main character of the inside of the brain. And, and it's her view that joy should be the dominant emotion. We shouldn't have to worry about feeling any of these other things. Joy is going to take care of it. We're always going to find the best of these things. We're not going to deal with, with sadness or disgust or even anger. It's all about joy. But by the end of the movie, there's this beautiful turn of events where where joy and sadness are sitting side by side. And a light switch kind of goes on in Joy's mind, where, you know what, we actually need some sadness. We need sadness so that we can experience the joy coming out of that. We can, we can mourn moving and, and leaving family and friends that we maybe grew up with or whatever, but, but out of that, maybe, maybe we can find joy in meeting new people. But it's, it's through the sadness that we find the joy. And... I'm not sure that Pixar wanted their movie to kind of speak to this text at all, but it is a, a good image. In that sorrow and joy, they're not just two random emotions, but they are actually intricate, intricately connected. Sorrow has to take place if joy is going to come. The example Jesus gives in John 16 here is of pregnancy and childbirth. The, the point he makes is you don't get the, the celebration of the newborn, Without the pregnancy, the morning sickness, the, the swollen ankles, the labor, the, all the recovery, from all the stuff, right? And he tells the disciples, Jesus does, that they can't get the joy without experiencing the sorrow. And their sorrow will be watched, Jesus beaten and bruised, hanging lifeless on a cross. Their sorrow will be watching his disfigured, lifeless corpse being pulled off of that cross and then put in a grave. Their sorrow will be watching their Messiah die. And they will weep and lament that death while the world around them rejoices that he's gone. And the world will think that they've won. But the sorrow of Jesus' death was necessary because his death was the only way for mankind to be saved. Without Jesus' death, there is no life for us. The sorrow is necessary, but he promises it will be short-lived. The promise Jesus makes is that the sorrow will only last for a little while. He's telling them, I will be back. He's telling them, he will rise again from the dead and he will be with them. And then their sobbing will turn to shouting. They're crying to cheering and their mourning to celebration. Now the sorrow is real. But the moment when Jesus appears to the disciples, that sorrow will just sort of be washed away by the joy of being with him again. The second thing we learn about joy in this passage is that joy is resistant to every attack. 
Look at verse 22. Jesus says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice so that no one will take your joy from you. This is is serious joy. No one will be able to take it from you. The joy that Jesus promises again, not just offers in hopes that we do something right to get it, but promises cannot be taken away. Now, think about the rest of the world around us. Does anything else give us that guarantee that the joy you get from it will last? I mean, it might give you it, but can it live up to that guarantee, right? Thieves can take away our stuff or they can get old and rust and break and and not bring us joy anymore. Disease can take away our health. It doesn't matter how healthy we are, one day this body's going to just let go. Death can take away family. But Jesus says this joy will last and no one can take it away. But there's other joy in our lives too, isn't there? And doesn't it seem that people do have the power to take that joy away? If someone says some unkind words or, or is dishonest with you or gossips or is, is cruel or bullying, all these things seem to be designed to take our joy away. Whenever I've experienced any and all of those, my joy is definitely gone. I am not joyful while being bullied or being lied to or being uh, treated poorly or any of these things. But Jesus says there is a joy that cannot be stolen. So what's the difference? Well, the the joy that Jesus promises, it can't be stolen because it is rooted in him. It's rooted in seeing Jesus again, in, in the disciples seeing him again, and that he has conquered death. He's overcome all of these things, and nothing can ever change that. So if we try to find our joy in anything else, whatever it might be, money, work, hobbies, relationships, There's no question that we can lose that joy because all of those things, you know, the shine kind of comes off them a little bit eventually. But a joy that's rooted in Jesus, a joy that's rooted in his victory over sin and death and the promise of an ongoing relationship with him, that one will withstand every attack. Earlier in John chapter 10, Jesus told us that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he goes after our joy. One writer says, placing our joy in things like relationships or work or events or security and health is like putting your life savings into a piggy bank, leaving it in a high crime district at night with a hammer and adding a little note asking people to leave it alone because it's really, really valuable. He says, you're a fool if you think that would be safe. But if our joy is in Jesus, we trade the piggy bank for Fort Knox And the devil gets a plastic spoon instead of a hammer. And you're a fool if you think that he can touch it. If the disciples' joy comes from a reunion with Jesus, their position in him and his promises to them, then what weapons could possibly stand up to that? There aren't any. It doesn't matter if they're betrayed by a closest friend. It doesn't matter if they're being persecuted for following Jesus. Those attacks on their joy are ultimately ineffective because Jesus has already taken those things onto himself and he's dealt with them and defeated them. And not just defeated them, but used them to usher in true and lasting joy. Of course, the ultimate joy stealer is death itself, but Jesus conquered death itself. So this joy that Jesus promises, it's revealed through sorrow. 
It resists every attack. And third, it's refreshed through answered prayer. Once again, we've got to remember that this is all part of a, a long teaching moment. And so Jesus has just talked about the vine and the branches. Sure, it was five or six weeks ago that we dealt with the beginning of John 15. But hopefully, the analogy for the disciples is still ringing in their ears of the vineyard and the vine and the branches. And Jesus continues, John 16, verse 23. He says, in that day, after I've come back, after that joy comes that, that you cannot lose, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That's something new for them. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He's saying that the disciples' joy transcends their circumstances and and flows out of their reunion with Jesus and from the confidence that, that he will never experience death again and they will never experience separation from Jesus again. The joy in Jesus will serve as as a foundation, a good foundation for a house. It'll root them, it'll support them, no matter what storms are going on around them. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has made a statement like this, ask and you will receive. But here's the promise. Again, they will always have access to Jesus. And through Jesus, they now have access to the Father. So ask the Father for these things. Again, this goes back to the vine and the branches of John 15, the promise that we saw there. When, when we're connected to Jesus, when we are his disciples, we have his joy flowing in us and through us, and, and, and we, we're, we're stuck. His life, his love comes to us, and we can, can dig into those deep wells, and, and when we have his joy, he will make our joy full and complete. For the disciples... This means that after the resurrection and after Jesus goes back to heaven, even though they won't physically be able to turn to Jesus and ask him a question like they've been able to do for the past months, they will have access to the Father and can ask him for whatever they need. The access to the Father that was once restricted just to Jesus or or for the Jews to the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, now all the disciples have. We all have. This can naturally bring up a couple of questions about prayer and especially answered prayer, so let's ask them. First, does this promise mean that God has to give me whatever I want? He said, ask in my name and you'll get it. The short answer, of course, is no. Jesus gives one guideline for this command. He says, whatever you ask for in my name. That immediately rules out a lot of what some people ask for. It cuts out the prosperity gospel and it, it shows the, the best life now kind of preaching we see in some Christian churches to be heresy. Not true. So what does it mean then to pray in Jesus' name? Here's a helpful ac- exercise I came across this week. Uh, picture, if you will, a blank sheet of paper in front of you. Fold it in half and now you've got two sections. Right across the top, there's, you're going to have two columns of things. On the one side, you're going to have comfort. You're going to list some things there. On the other side, you're going to have mission, and you're going to list things there. Now think about your prayers for the last couple of days or a week or a couple of weeks. And on that imaginary piece of paper, write down which category those prayers fit into. If God answered this prayer, would it be building up my comfort, or would it be fulfilling and furthering his mission? If God answers this prayer, will it 
make me more comfortable or will it drive the kingdom of God forward? Jesus promises that the Father will answer every request made in his name. Sometimes I worry that uh, having grown up in or around the church, we become too complacent when we sort of tack on at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name I pray. Right? We, we, we pray for dinner with the kids, we pray putting the kids, whatever else. We'll never oh yeah, I should say this, in Jesus' name we pray. We know we're supposed to do it, so we just sort of, it's like rubber stamping and sealing the prayer, right? But think about what we're actually saying. Think about what we're asking when we put that at the end of our prayers. When we say, in Jesus' name I ask these things, we're saying that, that we believe that what we've just asked for, the requests we've just presented to God, the words we've just said to the Father, would be things that Jesus would have asked for himself if he was here. It means we're asking for something we were saying, that we're asking for something that Jesus commanded to be done. Now that makes me rethink a bunch of things that I've rubber-stamped with in Jesus' name at the end. If we define comfort, that comfort list, the way we generally think about it today, you know, I, I'm not, not put out too much, you know, I can kind of do whatever I want, I can kind of get through, uh, I'm not inconvenienced. If we define comfort that way, Jesus doesn't care about your comfort. Let me throw that out there. He loves you, he cares for you, he wants what's best for your life, he's for you, all those things are true, but, but comfort, a cushy life, I don't think he cares about that. Just a handful of verses before he told the disciples, you'll be thrown out of the synagogue, which is your entire identity, your entire community, everyone you know, every family, they're going to throw you out of that, and people, when they kill you, will think they're doing God's work. But ask, and you'll receive. The disciples, when they start to pray, they're not praying for earthly comforts. In Jesus' name, could I have another 100 square feet? In Jesus' name, the kitchen rental would be really nice if that was done. No, they're praying for the kingdom of heaven to advance in the world. Think, too, how Jesus responded when, when the disciples asked him, Hey, Lord, teach us to pray. We read that in the Gospel of Luke, and also in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about how to pray, and, and what does he say? He says, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not make me more comfortable. It's God, your will be done. Jesus promised that the prayers that we pray for the advancement of his kingdom would be answered, not the ones that build our own kingdoms. The second question about prayer. How does prayer make our joy overflow? Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, it could just be me, but sometimes prayer feels like a duty, not a delight. It's something I know I should do. It's something I know I should teach my kids to do. It's something I, I know I should be doing with, with this group here, and, and we should, all these things. It just feels like a duty some days. But again, think about the vine and the branches. It's that, that, that exchanging of life and love and joy. Prayer is how we commune with Jesus, and so that's where we will find that joy. The disciples' sorrow will, will turn to joy when they're reunited with Jesus and they're in his presence again. And after Jesus goes to heaven, prayer is the way that they get to be in his presence. 
And so for us to remain in Jesus and have his words remain in us means we have to respond to him in prayer. We have to invest in that relationship through prayer. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, the bottom line is this. We need to pray. We must. Not out of duty, but out of necessity. Not as a dead requirement, but as a desperate plea. We need more of Jesus. And we want more joy. And joy comes as we ask Jesus to help us fulfill the mission he gave us. Prayer gives us the power to do what we're called to do. And we're, we're called to live holy, holy lives, to be generous, to be bold, to be thankful, to be repentant, and to be selfless. And let me just say, I don't think I can do any of those things without the Spirit's power in me. And this only happens as we beg God to work in us. And not beg because he needs to be, you know, have his arm twisted or cajoled to work in us, but because we recognize our need for it. A lack of prayer brings a lack of power, which in turn brings a lack of joy. This takes practice. I have good weeks, I have bad. I have good days, I have bad. And my world can sometimes get really noisy and really distracting, and I give in to those distractions instead of trying to sit in the solitude and hear from the Lord. But it's then that our relationship will grow. As we move towards living on mission instead of aiming for comfort, prayer becomes just as natural as breathing. So we have seen how this joy is revealed in a time of sorrow, how it is resistant to every attack, and it is refreshed through answered prayer. The last thing we see in this passage is that this joy is rooted in a reconciled relationship. Look at verse 33. You've probably heard it once or twice before. I love this verse. It's kind of the very last thing Jesus says in this teaching section. The next verse that we read that, that they head out, they end up in the garden, and we get that, that beautiful high priestly prayer of John 17. But, so this is kind of the last, last words of Jesus to his disciples. He says, I've said these things to you, three chapters worth of things, that in me you may have peace. In the world, what does it say? You might have tribulation. You might trip and stumble sometimes. No, you will have tribulation. You will have troubles. You will have hard times. It will not be easy. You will have suffering in this world. But take heart. Be courageous. Because I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world, Jesus says. In these last verses, Jesus reminds the disciples that they now have access to the Father. They don't need to go to Jesus to be in the presence of God anymore. In fact, he uses the title Father six times in just a couple of verses. And he's saying, listen, sin had destroyed your relationship with God. Sin has destroyed all of our relationships with God. But Jesus came and he took the sin away from the world. And because of their faith in Jesus and their love for him and what Jesus is about to do on the cross— they can now experience the love and the presence of God. Because Jesus took our sin and sacrificed his life on the cross for us, the way to God is now open. I love how the writer of Hebrews reminds us, therefore, because of all that Jesus did for us, let us approach the throne of grace. How? With boldness. Not, not hoping that God will give us just some scraps not hoping that we've done enough to not get struck by lightning as we approach the throne. Not, not timidly, but boldly. 
I've heard someone use the, the, uh, the analogy of you've got a, maybe a president of a major company or a president of a nation, and, and you know, to walk into the throne room, to walk into the, the boardroom, you better have an appointment for some of these guys, right? You don't just show up and say, hey, can we just sit down? Unless you're that person's kid or grandkid. It's probably even better, right? The grandkids can throw the doors open and run right in there and jump on the lap. And picture that. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Sit on the Father's lap so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we've been reconciled to God. Here's the thing he's telling us, that it's, it's our sin that is the root of our unhappiness. We can, we can look around our lives and we can look around the world and we can see that something's not right, that something's broken. And that thing is, is our relationship with God. Our lack of joy can be traced back to a lack of peace with God. And the only way to be able to regain that joy is to have our peace with God restored. And that's what Jesus did here. That's what he just told them. I've overcome this. The sin, it's, it's, it's going to be dealt with. Because of his work, we can have peace. And Jesus' peace isn't just that roller coaster peace, that fleeting emotional moment. C.S. Lewis wrote, Life in God is not immunity from difficulty, but peace in difficulty. In this life, you will have troubles, you will have suffering, but take heart, have peace, be courageous, because I have overcome that. Let me wrap up with this from Matt Carter, and then I'll, I'll pray for us. What hinders our joy? is our habit of ingesting so much of the cotton candy of this world that we never get around to feasting on the rich, satisfying joy that's ours in Jesus. We who have believed are in Jesus, and that's how we experience joy in times of trouble and persecution. Though we're still in the world, and though we're still engaged in our mission for him, we are in Jesus. We're branches connected to the true vine. We receive our strength and nourishment through the vine. We may still have tribulation and trials and suffering in the world, but in Jesus we have peace, a peace that fuels a joy that rises above the circumstances of life. Let me challenge us this week to look at the moments where we are missing joy in our life. I shared in the first service that yesterday, preparing to preach on joy, I was a grouch, like a grouch. And I, I don't know why, I don't know what it was. I, I just couldn't shake it all day. I had moments of like, okay, I don't know, then right back into grouchy land. And it takes time to, to sit and be quiet and say, okay, what was that about, Jesus? What, what was I looking to for joy in that moment that wasn't there and I took it out on those around me? Whether it was, you know, affirmation from my family, whether it was what, what I, I don't even know what it might have been. Sometimes it's, it's our misplaced priorities. I, I want this thing, and it doesn't give me joy. Sometimes there's just sin in the way that we need to take to Jesus and say, you dealt with this on the cross. I need to hang on to that truth and, and deal with this again in me. That um, third song, the Graves, uh, Graves to Garden song, there was a line there that said, uh, I, I've, I'm going to butcher it, but you know what? I, I give you my stuff. I, I, I bring everything I am before you, and you still call me your friend. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus knows Grouchy Sean, and yet he still calls me his friend. Let me pray for us.
Jesus, thank you for this chunk of John's gospel where you, you've said so much to your disciples about what their relationship with you will look like going forward. And it's just been chock full of promise after promise after promise. That you'd, you'd go, but you'd come back. That you're preparing a place for the disciples. You're preparing a place for us. That, you, that you, you're going to send the Holy Spirit. You're going to send the advocate to, to be with us, to, to, to advocate for us, to put steel in our spine as we tell people about you. You've promised that, that the, the way for us to find life is to be attached, to abide in you, to remain in you, like, like branches on a vine. And, and when we do that, your life and your love will flow from you, the vine, into us, the branches. And without you, we can do nothing. We're worthless. We're just chopped off branches looking for a landfill or the fire to be burned. But, but you call us to you and you ask us to be with you. You make the way. And, and even in spite of the things we'll face in this world, you promised hardship to the disciples. You promised suffering, but you said, take heart, I've overcome that. My peace is with you. My peace is for you. Help me and help us to evaluate where we've been looking for our source of joy. Forgive us when we've turned to things that are not you. And draw us back to you.